Amen. Thank you, Pastor Matt. Again, family, good morning. Let's get our Bibles out and let's open to Ephesians chapter 5, page 1081 in the Pew Bible in front of you. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, just grab that Bible in front of you. Open to 1081 so you can follow with us. You're welcome to take that Bible home if you don't have a Bible or take that Bible to somebody that you know that needs a Bible. It's our gift to you. Now, we are in a series called We Are Family, and we're going to walk through the book of Ephesians. But what we've done is something a little bit different. We're starting with chapter 5, and we're having a conversation about the family and about our relationships and about the way that we are to approach relationships. And we started this conversation last week. And if you did not hear last week's message, then I would encourage you after we're done today for you to find time this week and go and listen to that or watch that on the website so that you are able to put the pieces together because it connects to what we'll talk about this morning. Now, a lot of things uh, in the world or in life are difficult, but things are difficult for different reasons. See, sometimes something's difficult because uh, it's very difficult or strenuous to do. And actually, the thing itself is very simple, but it's very difficult maybe physically or it's difficult taxing to accomplish the task. Other times, things are difficult because they're just hard to understand. They're hard to comprehend. They're not necessarily difficult to execute once you've understood it, but it's just hard to get there. This conversation we begin tonight today might be the most difficult thing in the Bible, not difficult theologically, difficult culturally. It might be the most difficult thing for me in this day and time to attempt to teach you. So I'm going to need you to really pay attention today. And the danger with a message like this and the coming weeks is if you hear what you usually hear, you're going to be misled. So don't listen to the voice in your head. Listen to the voice that's coming through this sound system. Okay? Amen. Welcome those of you that are joining us online. Let's see what God's going to show us today. Let's ask him for help. Lord, we need your help this morning. If you, Holy Spirit, don't give us ears to hear, we have no opportunity. So we invite you into this moment to supernaturally help us, Lord, to hear from you what you need us to hear. Give us understanding and wisdom. Give us courage to hear countercultural realities. God, give us courage to change for your honor and glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so last week we set the stage with this reality. You can get your listening guides out. That Jesus calls his followers to live life in a way that is impossible for them to achieve. It's impossible. When you look at Ephesians chapter 5, it is like the pinnacle of impossibility. And we talked about last week that God enables us through the filling of His Spirit to be able to accomplish the things that He calls us to do. But apart from His help and strength, we have no chance. We have no chance. All right, let's set the stage this morning on the impossibility of the life God's called us to lead. Let me walk you through some verses. First of all, up on the screen, Philippians chapter 2, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you not look at his own interests, but also the interests of others. 
Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count it equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now you read a passage like that and you, if you actually read it and meditate on it and look at it and think about it and study it, you quickly come to the realization that what God is calling us to do is a human impossibility. Our flesh has no chance, has no chance unless it's completely filled and yielded to the Spirit to be able to live up to such a glorious picture of what God's called us to. I mean, here we see the Lord who lays aside His glory. He lays aside all of His comfort. He leverages His power, not for His own benefit, but for ours. He emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant. You notice that? He... he, he wasn't assigned the, the, the position of a servant. He wasn't prescribed the position of a servant. He took it upon himself. He willingly took it upon himself. And then the passage finishes in verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So what we see is that Jesus took the low road, but God gave him the high road, the high place. He took the role of a servant, and God gave him the name that's above every name. So you see, we're already realizing just the the reverse countercultural way that God's kingdom works. That the way up is the way down. Completely and utterly counterintuitive. And so this God who calls us to this life, what is this life he calls us to? He calls us to a life. Every time we we find uh, in the New Testament Jesus or the Apostle Paul or one of the writers of the New Testament calling us to the impossibility of this life. It's always, it's always a reflection of what Christ has done. It's for us to be Christ-like, to follow his example, and to uh, aspire to be as much like him as we can be. Well, that's good because in John chapter 4, Jesus says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And then in the very next chapter, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. Now get this. Think this through. John chapter 5, I can do nothing of my own, Jesus said. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own Not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Was Jesus equal with God? It's not a trick question. Of course he was. But he voluntarily submitted himself to the Father. It was in no way an assault upon his dignity to do so. It in no way implies that he was somehow inferior to the Father because he did so. No. He was fully equal to God, and yet he willingly chose to submit himself to another. So what about us? We feel oftentimes that anything to do with submission is an assault on our dignity. And yet according to Scripture, 
maybe nothing makes us as much like Jesus as modeling his submission. It was not, think about how it was not only below him to voluntarily submit to another of whom he was equal. Well, if it wasn't below him to do that, then it's not below me and you. So, so far this morning, in just a few minutes, what we've seen is that Jesus willingly submitted to the Father. Have we seen that in Scripture? Yes, we have. Have we seen that in His submission to the Father, we receive the blessing? Have we seen that? In Philippians 2, even death on a cross. And have we seen that in his willful, willful submission to the Father, we receive the blessing. And thirdly, that he receives the glory. Because what does the Bible say? That he was exalted. His name is above every name. So we've seen those three things, right? Willful submission, our blessing, and glory to God. Isn't that correct? Just got to make sure because, look, you're going to need that in a minute, so you better anchor yourself to it because your mind is going to want to go a different direction. One more thing we need to establish with regards to the we who received the blessing. Who is the we who received the blessing? John chapter 13. He arose from supper, Jesus, the night before he died. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. Now, why do I go to John 13? Because we need to, we've got to address this issue of deserve. Jesus is Lord, and he deserves all power and all glory, and yet he lays aside his garments, taking the form of a servant, washing dirty feet, and I want you to think about whose feet he was washing. Then the Bible goes on to say that when he had washed their feet, and put back his outer garments and resumed his place. He said to them, do you understand what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for I am so. If then, your Lord, I am your Lord and teacher, and I have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet, for I have given you an example that you also should do as I have done to you. Did the disciples deserve for Jesus to wash their feet? No. Not at all. Considering who he is and considering who they are, it was the most reversed thing that you could imagine. And yet the Bible says that God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So clearly, deservedness is not part of the equation, is it? It is not. It had nothing to do with God's activity. God didn't change course because of deservedness. So, Let's establish, put all that together and establish a truth. Jesus' submission to the Father resulted in undeserved blessing for us and glory to God. That's what we've seen. His submission to the Father 
resulted in undeserved blessing for us and glory to God. So with that in mind, let's go back to Ephesians 5, 18 and following and see if we can get some clarity. The Bible says, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Remember last week, the result of being filled with the Spirit is, verse 19, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ Submitting to one another out of reverence to Christ. What Ephesians 5 longs to teach us is what our relationships ought to look like. See, Before you get, as your eyes go down, before you get to the relationship of husbands and wives and parents and children and uh, servants and masters, before you get to these specific uh, areas of relationship, this has to be understood. None of that makes any sense if you don't understand this. That when we are filled with the Spirit, when we walk in, in the power of God and not our own power, when we are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, our relationships are utterly and completely transformed. And the most recognizable part of a transformed relationship, according to the Bible, is submission. Submission, a word most people have no clue what it means, and an utterly twisted understanding of what they think that it's referring to. But just to ease into this conversation, submit to one another is the opposite of use one another. Most contemporary applications of submission in Christian or pseudo-Christian circles today is not submission at all. It's using. It's using. Most, Most times in a relationship in the midst of relationship struggles, when I'm trying to help people and I hear the word submission used by one of the people in the relationship that's struggling, they're totally misappropriating it. And it's an effort to use the other person. So when we submit, what are we doing? Well, we're placing others' needs before our own. Now, when I say that, what comes to your mind is, and I understand because of the tangled mess that this is, when I say placing others' needs before your own, you think, so that means let people walk all over me. Well, here's my question. Does your spouse need to walk all over you? Is it good for them to walk all over you? Does your friend need to walk all over you? Does your parent or child need to walk all over you? Is it good for them? Does your boss need to walk all over you? Is it good for them to walk all over you? If I'm placing the needs of the other person, the needs of the other person above my own, 
before I can take one step into submission, what do I have to understand? What do I have to discern? What do I, before I can respond to any situation, what do I need to first figure out? What are their correct? What are their needs? Once I've discerned what their needs are, then I can respond appropriately. And oftentimes what you find is that an appropriate response and submission is a carefully crafted confrontation. I don't know about you, But in my marriage and in my friendships, in my relationships, the other person is never always right. That's my job. So if all the people in my life ever do is agree with me, then what happens? It's not what I need, is it? No. It's not what I need. What creates, heals, and sustains healthy relationships? It's a great question. The truth. The truth. You see, needs are based on truth. We're not talking about wants. We're not talking about desires. We're not talking about ideas. We're not talking about imagination. We're talking about truth. What's the truth? And so when we put the needs of another person above our own, what we're saying is what we're going to do is put the truth what truth do they need in order for us to navigate rightly this situation that we're in? I'm trying to think ahead of myself. Because I know your scenarios and your situations. I mean, I've been listening to them for 30 years. I know how this works. I know there's some of you sitting here thinking, yeah, okay, pastor. But what you don't realize is that every time I try to confront craftily and carefully, it just creates more problems. You got a friendship like this? You got a relationship like this? You got a spouse like this? You got a child like this? Yeah. And they just get more aggravated. See, that statement is an indication that you clearly don't understand submission. And it, it, it is evidence that you have the wrong motivation in your correction. If your focus in a relationship is setting the other person straight, all you're ever going to get is more aggravation and more headache and more conflict, right? It's never going to work. But if your motivation is genuine and pure and based on the needs of the other person and it's expressed that way. See, here's what I've, I, I've learned. I've learned that when I come into a conflict in a relationship where I'm trying to walk in biblical submission in this relationship, and I see that the other person in this relationship 
needs some crafty, gentle correction. When I approach that from, hey, listen, because we're already in a relationship. This isn't a stranger. None of these principles apply to anyone who's not a Christian because they're all impossible if you're not filled with the Spirit. And we established last week that the only people filled with the Spirit are genuine, born-again believers, right? So I'm already in a relationship with a person. So when I step into this moment, whether it be my children or my spouse or a friendship, when I step into this moment and say, listen, I love you. And I love this relationship that we have. And all I want is what's best for you. So here's what I think God is saying to us in this moment. I don't get more aggravation. But if I go in with a goal of setting someone straight or just establishing my opinion or the truth or just trying to execute change in the quickest, swiftest, most efficient way, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. So a truly submissive person is both confronting and compliant depending on what is best for the other person. Now I want you to maybe write underneath that statement or a note to yourself to, to go back and think about it. I want you to think about moments that you know of in the life of Christ where he was both of those two things. He was never always just one or always the other. He was sometimes one and sometimes the other, depending on the situation, depending on the circumstance. And oftentimes when people thought he ought to be one way, he was actually the other. Right? And so when we talk about submission, we have to understand what we're talking about. It's choosing to be passive or active. Let me tell you what doesn't work. What won't work is me and you are in a friendship. And every time I do something wrong or every time I say something wrong or every time there might be a hint of something wrong, you come in with a correction. Annoying much? You ever been in a relationship with somebody who corrects little things that are of no significance? You ever, you ever started telling a story? There, you're, maybe you're with a group of folks or you're in your community group. Praise God, hope this doesn't happen, but I'm sure it does. You're in your community group. And one of you says, starts telling this story to the class about to, to, to show this amazing thing that God did. And so you start saying, well, you know, uh, it was a couple months ago and I was here and I was doing this and this and then your spouse slash Holy Spirit <laughs> corrects you midstream and says no 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 you weren't there going there it was it was a Thursday not a Tuesday remember because you had just went by the cleaners and picked up your jacket and said shut up what has that got to do with the story? Right? You don't, sometimes you just, sometimes submission is zip it. If it doesn't matter, zip it. You got to save up for when you need it. Choosing to be passive or active according to what's in the best interest of the other person. See? Pastor, I've just given and given and given in this relationship. 
And now I have to do something for me. You ever said that? Again, that statement is a strong indication of something. That statement validates that what you've been doing is you've been being selfishly submissive. I've been giving, I've been giving, I've been giving. And I'm just worn out and I got to do something for me. What does that mean? Does that mean it, it, it means that you've been submissive because you maybe want to feel virtuous? Or you've been submissive because you want to keep the peace? That's selfish submission. And it will always end in you feeling like you're about to explode. That's not biblical submission. That's not balancing being passive or active or confrontive or compliant. That's doing whatever serves you in the moment and calling it submission. See, selfless submission is not motivated by, listen, trying to win. Because that's about you. We're putting what's best for who? The other person before us. It's not about us winning. The minute you're trying to win the argument, you've lost. You've lost. And here's the key. When it comes to walking in biblical submission in relationships... It's never based on the other person's reaction. You see, the, no matter what my thoughts are about whether or not the person that I'm, I'm going in to have a conversation with, whether I believe they're going to listen to me or totally ignore what I say or whatever the case may be, does not change what I do. I'm not doing what I'm doing predicated on what you're going to do in response to that. You got to really think of this through. Let me show you. You, you remember the, the verse back in John chapter 3, right after John 3.16? Where the Bible says, the light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. People rejected the light. But the light still came. You see, the light still showed up. You got to understand one thing about God. God does what's the right thing regardless of what we're going to do, right? And so who are we modeling this after? God. So you are going to get so tangled up in your understanding of submission if you're constantly worried about what the other person is doing as you're trying to be mutually submissive. God doesn't do that. Notice what the Bible says. Look down in your Bible, Ephesians 5. Look at the key to the whole thing is verse 21. And look at what it says. Submitting to one another and then underline, out of reverence for Christ or out of fear for Christ. It's awe, reverence. Submission is motivated by reverence to God. It's not motivated by how much you love the other person or care for the other person. It's not motivated by what they're going to do in response to what you do. It doesn't, does it have anything to do with them? Nothing. 
That's, what you, that's where the train completely leaves the track. Your submission has nothing to do with them. It's 100% motivated by reverence to Christ, by your, your awe of God, your relationship with God. You see, submission is our way of saying, God, I love you. I'm so grateful for all that you've done for me. Your grace is amazing. Your salvation is the greatest gift I could have ever dreamed of or imagined. Lord, it's my honor and my desire to be able to be faithful to you. Anything I can do for you, Lord, I want to do because you are amazing. That's the motivation of submission out of reverence for Christ. Christianity, listen, the life that God called us to, biblical Christianity, is becoming so overwhelmed with worship and the preciousness of God's gift to you in Christ that it begins to change your attitude toward everyone and everything. That's the goal here. But here's what we're doing. We're looking at everyone and everything and then trying to be honoring to God. It won't work that way. It has nothing to do with them. It has nothing to do with them. I literally thought about Making the entire listening guide, it has nothing to do with them. 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 So that in the years to come, when you come into my office with your catastrophic relationship problems and you start telling me, I'm just going to hold the card up. That's what I'm going to do. Because what, what do you do? What do you do in the, when your relationships are frustrating you and they're not working right then? And you start talking and all you talk about is them. It has nothing to do with them. Should I say it ten more times? You don't have to tell me about them. I know them. I know they don't deserve it. But Jesus does. That's the point. Look at how this is all framed and put together in this section of Ephesians 5. Look, so... Look at the result of being, let's look closely at exactly what the result of being filled with the Spirit is. What does it lead to? Look at verse 19. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. It's very specific what it says. Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. It's a specific kind of songs that lead to a specific kind of melody. Right? You, you see that? Look, you better understand something. You're not filled with the Spirit when you're singing about putting a rolly on a redneck. That ain't how this works. You're not. Or how exhausted you are from always rooting for an anti-hero. Yay. All the old people in the room are like, I don't even know what you're talking about. Well, congratulations. You can buy yourself flowers. But all the junk, it's a specific kind of song. What, what, is this, what are these songs that we're singing? They're songs about who? 
They're not songs. They're not just songs. They're not just songs that we like. They're, not, they're songs about God. We're overwhelmed with the goodness of God, and we start singing songs about God. It fills our heart with melody towards Him, with love and adoration towards Him, which creates this giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see that? You know what this isn't? This isn't, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work on putting you first. I mean, honestly, I can just imagine this relationship struggle and these two people that have been at it, whatever the relationship is. And these two Christians can't seem to be in sync or see eye to eye. And so I make my point, you make your point, and our conclusion is, I'm going to work hard at putting you first. You know, the the dumbest thing your spouse can say to you is, I'm going to work hard at putting you first. That is the dumbest thing. That is dumb. That is so dumb. You are going to work hard at putting me first? Well, I know where that's about to lead. That's going to lead to fiasco. But when somebody looks at you and says, I'm going to devote myself to putting Christ first in this relationship, everything changes. Everything changes. You see, I'm going to submit to you for Christ. I'm not submitting to you for you. I'm submitting to you for Him. I'm submitting to you out of the power generated by the joy in my heart for what God has done for me. Imagine you're There you are in your prayer closet. And it's your relationships that have just got you all twisted. Your relationships with your brothers and sisters in Christ, your relationships with your spouse, your relationships with your children, your relationships at work, your relationships have just got everything a mess. And there you are in your prayer closet. And you're talking to God about it. You're in the right place, talking to the right person. And you say, God, I know you know this is going on and that's going on and all these things are going on, Lord. And I'm so grateful for everything you've done for me. I'm so thankful for the way that you've changed my life and transformed my eternity and forgiven all of my sin and wiped away the stain of my past. My heart is overflowing with gratitude towards you. What can I do, Lord, for you? can I do that would honor you? What do you want me to do? And you hear a still, small voice say, treat them like I treated you. Do you think I was focused on all the negative things about you when I was going to the cross? Do you think I was focused on all the reasons why I ought not be doing this? How did Jesus make it to the cross? Who was Jesus focused on? 
What does the Bible teach us was the motivation that got Jesus to the cross. It wasn't our neediness. It wasn't our brokenness. It wasn't our terribleness. It was his love for the Father. It's the same thing that's going to motivate me and you. It's not about them. It's about him. It's about him. That's what Jesus would say. See, we're going to be in relationships with people. And that means that the relationships that we're in are with people who are unworthy. Because everyone's unworthy, including you. But he's always worthy. And that never changes. So see, being filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Think about the people in your life right now. What I want you to do, just right where you are, close your eyes. I want you to think about your relationships. Think about your brothers and sisters in Christ. Think about your spouse. Think about your children. Thinking about your work relationship. Think about your relationships. Jesus wants to say to you, your brothers and sisters in Christ are the appointed agent authorized to receive the love you want to pour on Jesus. Your spouse is the appointed agent authorized to receive the love you want to pour on Jesus. Your children are the appointed agent authorized to receive the love you want to pour on Jesus. Those in authority over you are the God-appointed agent authorized to receive the love you want to pour on Jesus. Do you see now? The people that God has placed in your life are the authorized agent to receive the love that you want to pour on Jesus. So look at me. Think this through. This is not a formula to fix. This is not a formula to fix. Because so oftentimes in my life and in the relationships that I navigate, I try to walk in biblical submission. And the other person okay it doesn't change this there's no this isn't some formula you apply and it's going to fix all your relationships no this is a path to fix you and me this isn't about them it's about us and our walk with him You see, it transforms that earlier statement into our submission to others results in undeserved blessing for them and glory to God. See how God did that? See how he made that? What would it look like if we began to walk and exist and swim in a sea of Biblical submission. Let's stand and bow our heads. Lord, we need your help this morning. We need your help in this moment.
understand the things that we've just heard. To bring this reality into our pain and into our difficulty. To undo things that we've spent a lifetime crafting. To break strongholds that have existed for some of us as long as we've been alive. To shatter perceptions. habits that have caused us pain for years and years and years. Lord, here's what we know in this moment. We know that you are God. We know that you have called us to walk in a way that we relate to other people through our gratitude and joy and thankfulness that we have in you. And so it's not impossible. It's possible for every person in this room who is a believer. So it's not about what we've missed yesterday. It's not about all the things that coulda, woulda, shoulda been. It's about this moment right now. Where do I stand in you? Do I know you as Lord and Savior? Am I desiring for you to fill me with the Spirit or am I fearful about what you might do when you fill me? Will I yield and submit and surrender myself to you? Will I walk in the face of my fears? Will I do what I know your gracious hand is calling me to do? So, Lord, in this moment, what we need is we need courage and clarity to respond rightly. God, let change begin now. Let a new day dawn in our hearts now that things might begin today to be different from here forward. And it would all be for your honor and your glory and your praise because we know how this story ends. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. We pray this in your name. Amen. The altar is open. I invite